You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. I'm very happy today to be uh, joined by Benjamin Reed, the Senior Manager of Mandiant Threat Intelligence's Cyber Espionage Team. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Great great to be here, Ankit. Well, um, Ben, I'm, I'm particularly excited to have you on to shed some light on a story that I wrote about recently at The Diplomat, uh, and we've had a few authors uh, chime in on this, including uh, Carl Thayer, uh, one of our contributors and diplomat risk intelligence um, experts as well. Um, and this story pertains to Vietnam's suspected use of offensive cyber capabilities to conduct intelligence-seeking activities within the Chinese public health apparatus. And of course, um, we're having this conversation in the backdrop of a global pandemic uh, that originated uh, in Hubei province in China um, in December, potentially a little earlier than that. Um, and your firm um, was at the center of the investigation that's been widely covered, including at The Diplomat, um, that a, uh, a cyber threat actor known as APT-32, thought to have links to the Vietnamese state, uh, carried out these operations against the Chinese entity. And I, I personally found that really fascinating. So one of the things I reflected on at The Diplomat um, when I was writing on this is that, you know, we're starting to see... Um, public health intelligence uh, activities being conducted through offensive cyber means. I'm not, I'm personally not familiar with previous examples. Maybe, maybe there are previous examples of uh, state sponsored groups conducting activities like this. Um, but what makes the Vietnamese case particularly interesting to me is looking at, um, is when we look at the actual successes that the Vietnamese government has had in its COVID-19 response domestically. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to ascertain in the public um, how much, the suspected uh, cyber activities actually contributed to that effort um, indigenously or or within uh, within Vietnam, uh, as far as the country's own response goes. But it's certainly something that uh, I'd be interested in learning a little bit more about. But anyways, um, before um, before I uh, you know I waste all of our time uh, talking myself, I'd love to hear from you. But maybe you can tell us uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background before we uh, we delve into today's conversation. Sure. Well, I just want to say first time, long time, I'm a big fan of the podcast. So really happy to to be here with you. Um, so I've been the manager for three years and been on the, the Mandiant Threat Intel team for five years. And we are a private company um, that tracks nation state uh, hackers worldwide. We do a variety of things, but my team is focused on really sort of finding this malicious activity, seeing who it's targeting, attributing it and building profiles of what sort of China sponsored, Russia sponsored, Vietnam sponsored uh, cyber actors are up to um, for sort of government and commercial clients. Mm -hmm. And um, so with that said, do you want to tell us a little bit about the core findings of your recent APT32 uh, investigation? Uh, as far as I understand, APT32 was first identified um, around eight years ago in 2012. Um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, the recent findings with regard to Vietnam, China and COVID-19. Sure. Yeah. We think they've been around since then. I mean, any anytime you sort of do a big attribution, you kind of find a little bit of stuff that you missed earlier. Um, but in this specific instance, what we found was multiple spear phishing emails sent, uh, we believe, by APT32 to both China's sort of public safety apparatus, as well as specifically the Wuhan government. And what was, they sort of it seemed to be a fairly methodical operation. The first emails really just didn't have any malware attached to them. They just had what's called a, a tracking pixel. Um, so when you open the email, uh, your email application sort of does a call out to try to retrieve a remote image the same way it would sort of 
for any type of image in the email, but this is usually a one pixel email that just gives the sender uh, a notification that it was opened by the victim. Um, this is something that's used for legitimate purposes in marketing, things like that. Um, but the first email we uncovered on January 6th just had this tracking pixel, didn't have any malware. Um, and then we believe subsequent emails sort of uh, continued to use this tactic and were, were sent to uh, multiple agents, parts of the Chinese government. And we believe the subsequent emails did have uh, sort of essentially malicious documents attached. So it would be uh, something about something topical, either about the response or things like that. And then when the victim opens it, it would sort of try to install malware. Right. And I guess on a tactical level, is that um, the initial email that just contains the tracking pixel, is that a way for the APT32 attackers to basically figure out if the emails that they're sending are likely to be opened in the first place before they begin using that as a malware vector? Yeah, it's a way to sort of test, are these people likely to open these emails? Is it going to get through? Is it going to get detected? But, I mean, do they have some sort of security appliance that's going to block it? Is In some cases, is this email still valid? Um, things like that, just sort of try to do reconnaissance and figure out your target before you start. Interesting. Um, and so when it, uh, when it comes to the actual link to, um, you know, Vietnam potentially looking for, uh, let's say early warning on the pandemic, uh, which I guess at the time was an epidemic, um, is there, so how do you actually do the attribution here? I mean, uh, APT32 is suspected to be linked to the Vietnamese state. Of course, um, you know, as far as a smoking gun goes, I'm guessing there's not anything that would really amount to the level of a smoking gun. But um, I'm guessing, you know, this is what your firm does and specializes in. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, how you go about identifying certain threats uh, as being state-sponsored versus not. Sure. So attribution really has two different levels and they're bo both important. Um, but the first one is linking together multiple distinct incidents. So we had this sort of stuff targeting the Chinese and, the, and sort of linking that to other technical activity that we believe is by the same threat actor. Um, and that's done through various means. Sometimes there's specific malware. Um, sometimes it's sort of Commit what we call command and control infrastructure that overlaps. So there'll be two different uh, domains that resolve to the same IP, and you'll be able to pivot through that. Um, sometimes it'll be more um, technical artifacts, a, a specific decoding routine that decodes sort of some information or encodes some information that's shared between different types of malware, or even things down to the sort of the passwords that these people are using to encrypt things. Um, if it's a unique password and it shows up. Um, in, the, in two separate incidents is likely they're, they're by the same people. So there's sort of, there's that step of linking together the technical information. And then there's the second step is, okay, so you've got this whole bucket of different hacks and incidents and spear fishes that you think is all one actor. And then sort of, who is that actor? And with APT32, it was built on a number of different things. It was primarily um, going after sort of like the stuff they were interested in. It was a fairly distinctive bucket and um, it was, Southeast Asian regional governments. It was a lot of private companies doing business in Vietnam. Um, and it was also a lot of Vietnamese civil society uh, dissident stuff, both sort of domestically and sort of dissidents living abroad. So any one of those incidents by itself um, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, there are lots of people who are interested in Southeast Asian governments. But when you're sort of able to build a profile image and 2012, I think the earliest we have from confirmed we have from them is 2014. 
um, when you're able to build that profile over six years, it sort of built a very strong case as to who who this information would be useful to. Um, and that's sort of why we say we believe they're acting in support of the Vietnamese government. I can't, with the data I have, I can't tie them to a specific sort of bureau or address or things like that. You occasionally get mistakes where you can do that, but we don't have that with APT32. Um, but it, it, it narrows down kind of who it could be. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, I mean, in this case, it sounds completely plausible, uh, given what you've just said, that APT32 basically adds as a, acts as an all-purpose arm uh, to serve Vietnamese straight, state interests um, from regional issues to uh, internal security and um, cracking down on dissidents. Um, in the COVID-19 case, I mean, um, you know, I was I was in Taiwan, for example, in early March, and, uh, you know, Taiwan's gotten a lot of press for its successful COVID-19 response. And one of the things that Taiwanese officials were telling me is that, you know, um, basically by the time the rest of the world was talking about the novel coronavirus uh, breaking out in Wuhan in, you know, mid-January, the Taiwanese had been tracking this since, um, you know, late December. They notified the WHO. Um, so they had early warning because they, uh, you know, Taiwan spends considerable resources tracking the Chinese language media in which you'd had reports crop up and get deleted by the Chinese censorship apparatus in December um, about this potential mysterious new pneumonia-like disease in Wuhan. So the Vietnamese do a lot of the same thing, right? I mean, um, geopolitically speaking, the Vietnamese have been quite skeptical of China. Um, some people have made the case that Vietnam as a fellow one-party uh, communist state understands the incentives that exist in such systems to um, not allow information to freely, uh, freely flow. And certainly they understand China. Uh, why China might do that. And of course, Vietnam remembers SARS as well um, in, in 2002, 2003. So, you know, I mean, we also know that the U.S. National Center for Medical Intelligence uh, had intel that contagion was spreading through Hubei. So it's it's it seems plausible to me that the Vietnamese uh, would have tasked APT32 with this um, going back to as early as December. But do you want to tell us a little bit about the timeline? Because uh, in the in the original report um, that you guys put out, uh, the timeline looks quite interesting in that uh, it seems that the Vietnamese were quite early uh, in in um, in attempting to penetrate um, Wuhan public health authorities uh, when it came to this. Yeah, the earliest, like I said, the earliest we have is January 6th. And um, I mean, we have a, a, only a partial picture of what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, we don't we don't do that, that much business on, in mainland China. Um, but the, the sort of the from the information we were able to gather it was definitely started that early, but it was sustained. We sort of saw continued spear phishing um, through January, February uh, into March, and I think even early April. So it was it was definitely something that they were continuing, something that they were, were being methodical, but um, as I said, was sending the email with just the tracking pixel, but um, was, was a high priority um, and what was from very early. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how... I mean, this is probably a difficult question to answer, but is this is this something that you think um, we can expect to see elsewhere in the world? I mean, this whole notion of countries using offensive cyber means uh, to inform things like public health policy, right? So, I mean, you know, one of the one of the issues with offensive cyber capabilities is, I mean, granted, you know, tracking pixels and uh, email-based malware seem fairly rudimentary, but you risk burning vulnerabilities that you can't use in the future. Um, so do you think that the fact that the Vietnamese did this tells us anything about the seriousness with which they viewed the COVID-19 situation uh, early on, going back to January? 
I mean, I think it definitely means it was a priority for them. I don't, I wouldn't, you should always be careful reading a lot into what seemed to be fairly straightforward methods. Um, what we see a lot of these actors do is that's where you start. Um, you start trying to get in through spear phishing, through sort of sending a malicious document. Um, and if, if that doesn't work, then you reach for the more, uh, the more sort of expensive, the more uh, high, high powered uh, things that they have. But if a lot of times it does work, so there's no reason to sort of burn those things. Um, and we've seen APT32 be very successful um, with watering holes, with spear phishing. Um, they compromise a good number of people. So uh, the the sort of the first stage and sort of the sophistication of that is doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't was a low priority, just that that's where they went first. Mm -hmm. All right. So, you know, zooming out a little bit, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about um, these you know, the cybersecurity interactions between Southeast Asian countries and China more broadly. Um, so first of all, I mean, you know, while we're talking about Vietnam, um, when it comes to the indigenous offensive cyber capabilities of many of these Southeast Asian countries, is Vietnam really the most sophisticated or uh, are there other countries in the region that uh, you think uh, deserve mention as well? Vietnam's the sort of the most sophisticated that we've been able to really profile like this. Right. It wouldn't surprise me if there were others going on, um, but they're they're not, neither sort of as they're not as prolific. Um, I think you have I mean you have sort of some technologically advanced countries in Southeast Asia that I think are probably capable, um, but I think Viet Vietnam's definitely sort of the most wide ranging. And the interesting thing about them is they they really use cyber for in a lot of different contexts. It's not sort of a pure sort of traditional espionage. They've used it um, to target companies doing business in Vietnam. We think both potentially to support kind of negotiations um, in sort of how much people are gonna pay for things, mm -hmm. but also potentially in support of like law enforcement or tax enforcement things to try to get, see if people were cheating on their taxes. So it's been it's been very much a tool that they like to use, right. um, but it, it is the sort of the most prolific out of Southeast Asia. Yeah, and what about on the flip side? I mean, uh, I know that I know that Mandian Threat Intelligence does a lot of work on uh, China-based threat actors. Um, certainly, China receives um, a lot of attention when it comes to offensive cyber capabilities. But what are uh, what are some of the ways in which, or some of the case studies you think our listeners should be aware of when it comes to um, China's interactions with Southeast Asian countries uh, on on the cyber front? Sure. So I think Southeast Asia is really interesting because, in some ways, China is operating there in the same way it was operating against the US maybe five or six years ago, where they're just, they're very active, they're fairly loud, um, they're fairly comprehensive, going after a lot of victims. And whereas some of the stuff against the US, there's China is definitely still active against the US, but that's where they seem to be, they're more worried about getting caught. They're sort of trying to be more stealthy. They do get caught, but but you see sort, sort of that, whereas the Southeast Asia things tend to be it's groups that sort of haven't invested as much in sort of higher level capabilities. So they're either, they're probably, we, our assessment is that they're both, the defenses aren't as well-funded there, so they can, can use those capabilities and there's less sort of political ramifications for sort of being outed targeting a Southeast Asian country. And in terms of what we've seen from them, there's a couple of different things where we've seen, obviously there's the traditional government stuff um, going to ministries of foreign affairs, ministries of defense um, that's been going on. It's, it's interesting. Um, but the two things I want to, three things I want to mention. The first is in regards to sort of health stuff. Um, we haven't seen, it hasn't necessarily been in the that vein of 
sort of pandemic preparedness, but we have seen sort of health institutions in Southeast Asia targeted by China. Um, we think this has been more along the lines of the Anthem targeting in the US where it was sort of societal surveillance, big data kind of trying to get a lot of information on people. Mm -hmm. um, but we have seen China sort of hack into uh, sort of healthcare systems, things like that. And I do want, and there's, and when people get into sort of attack versus hacking, like those, those things get sort of used interchangeably, but I think it's important to, it, it does, there is a separation between getting in gathering data versus going in like shutting off the power to a hospital and deploying ransomware so they can't help people. Um, so what we've seen from China has been that that information gathering. Um, the second one is related to that. They've really been over the last couple of years going after sort of telecoms, travel agencies, things that sort of facilitate further surveillance, um, airlines, things like that. So we've seen this with a group we track as APT40 um, in multiple places in Southeast Asia. They'll go after airlines and then they'll search for specific travelers. Who are traveling in and out so it's they're they're very well incorporated with the rest of the the traditional intelligence sort of the human intelligence side of it um and that's really been a change in how china does things where it's cyber is not on its own cyber is integrated and they're they're doing that um, we've also seen that with telecoms where they'll go into a telecom and they'll have specific phones that they want to mess they want to um, capture the text messages from um, they'll have the imea numbers um, and, and, and do that. So it's it's really been cyber sometimes to get the specific data that a specific foreign ministry or company has, but sometimes they'll, they'll do intrusions into companies that sort of broader, enable broader surveillance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, I don't know if you can speak to this, but broadly speaking, in Southeast Asia, how aware are large, let's say, private sector uh, corporations about the risks that arise to their operations and their interests from, uh, let's say, Chinese uh, cyber surveillance and espionage activities? Is this something that's actively at the top of the agenda for many of these uh, companies and actors? There's a lot of diversity. Um, we have seen sort of the, the Asia Pacific, one of the things that sort of the Mandiant, our big M-Trends report, it does a stat on sort of how long from initial breach to detection. Um, and Asia has consistently been behind where North America and Europe are on that. So there is sort of a lag in the detection capabilities, but you see some companies that are taking it seriously and some that either don't have the resources or sort of view it as a sort of something that's not worth investing in. I mean, we've definitely done those notifications to companies, to governments We're like, hey, it looks like based on some data we have that, that you've got a problem with the Chinese in there. And they're like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Um, so there, is a, there are some companies that are, but there are a lot where it's just, it's just not at the top of their, their worries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, one other thing I wanted to just maybe talk to you a little bit about, not really related to Southeast Asia per se, um, but one of the things that we've been particularly interested in at The Diplomat, uh, we had um, Russell Shao, um write about this for our magazine on uh, Taiwan, um, was the ways in which China, uh, particularly since 2016 and the election of Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP government in Taiwan, has uh, stepped up its cyber efforts uh, in Taiwan. Of course, this has been ongoing for a long time, even, even in the KMT days. Um, but I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about the broad contours about um, what you guys see when it comes to the mainland's activities across the Taiwan Strait and the cyber realm. Sure. So I, they're definitely really active. Um, I mean, not that that 
comes as a surprise, but we've seen targeting of sort of the full spectrum of Taiwanese society um, from governments, local governments, universities, as well as private industry. Um, and that's been, it's been consistent. Um, what we've, the interesting thing for me is you've also seen sort of reporting, we've uncovered some of the sort of overt information operations, some sort of propaganda sort of acknowledged by the Chinese government where they're, they're putting their name on it, some, some more sort of inauthentic behavior. Uh, but we haven't seen anything like the Russia playbook of really mixing the two. Um, so Russia kind of does go in and obviously there's the 2016 hack and leak operations, but even more recently you've seen them compromising newspapers and changing stories, getting into their CMS and changing stories that are up there to be sort of incendiary propaganda, things like that. And you haven't seen the Chinese actors really go down that road of mixing the intrusion and the information operation capabilities. So I think it'll be interesting to see as sort of things develop if that that comes out, but it does seem, I don't know if it's, I don't know enough about the Chinese bureaucracy to say if that's a, a bureaucratic issue or it's just a philosophical issue. Um, I'm sure there are, are China watchers who are better equipped there, but we see heavy surveillance of Taiwan, um, but not the surveillance and the information operations haven't kind of crossed streams mm-hmm. yet. Well, uh, Ben, I really want to thank you for uh, coming on the podcast to share with our listeners uh, something that I think we really should be doing more on. I mean, um, like you said, I mean, it was interesting to hear about the methods that you guys use. And uh, a lot of the times you're only seeing a very partial picture of uh, the cyber threat environment. Um, but it is it is really helpful to have the kinds of um, public products um, that you guys put out there, uh, which really helps us uh, understand uh, the kind of stuff that's going on out there. I think APT32 in particular is a, is a really fascinating example um, in Asia, uh, particularly in the context of COVID-19. So again, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast to talk to me today. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. For our listeners, make sure you subscribe to the Diplomats podcast so you can keep up with future episodes. You can do that on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, any other number of podcast providers out there. We're quite available. Um, And secondly, if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that on any one of those services. It really helps get the word out about the show and uh, grow our listenership. And finally, uh, before we close, a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com.